are in Romans chapter 5. Romans 5, if you have your Bible with you. If you don't, there's one under one of the chairs around you, or I'm sure you can open up an app on your phone. We are in Romans chapter 5. If you're taking notes, we're talking about peace with God this morning, peace with God. Why don't we pray once more? Father, we're thankful to be able to gather in this place to worship You, to fix our eyes and our ears and our hearts and attention on You, God, and what it is that You want to do in us, knowing that, God, You also want to do a work through us. You want to uh, use us in our families, in our communities. Um, Through this church, You want to impact uh, this city and beyond, Lord, with the gospel. And And yet we also know that we can't do any of this without you. And so this morning we're here to uh, be equipped by you, to be transformed by you, and, uh, and to reside with you, Lord, as you have so desired to dwell with your people. And so we are thankful for that. Um, but this morning we ask that you would speak to us through your word and, and your spirit, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Peace with God, Romans 5. We're going to look at just the first five verses of Romans 5. For the last few weeks, Paul has led us through the deep waters. We've been underwater, really, thinking about this topic of human depravity. Paul has helped us to see through that conversation our need of justification by faith with the backdrop of human sin. He's, as he says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God from the worst pagan out there to the critical moralizer to the religious zealot. Paul says, listen, everybody, everybody is sinful. All are guilty. All are without excuse and all stand underneath the judgment of God. Both now we're experiencing And we see the judgment of God in the temporal effects and in eternity when every person will stand before God as judge. From chapter (coughs) 1 to chapter 4, Paul has then argued and defended his gospel, this good news in light of the bad news, this good news, this gospel of justification, how someone is made right with God, this justification by faith alone in the person and work of Christ alone, and, and how it is only through faith. It's not through religion, it's not through your family, it's not through baptism, it's not through any other work, it's only through faith that allows us to receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ credited to us in our spiritual account. This is what Paul has been talking about. This was the gospel that Paul said, I am so unashamed of in Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. Those are the the deep waters that we've been swimming in. We've been largely underwater, it feels like, holding our breath. It's been a, a difficult for some, maybe a hard conversation, but the time has finally come as we've come to Romans chapter 5 for us to breach the water and take in a deep breath of fresh air as we come to this wonderful chapter. In chapter 5, we will see that Paul He's no longer feeling the need to defend his position. He's no longer arguing his point that all people are sinful. He's no longer trying to reason from the Scriptures to prove his point that divine justification has always, always, always been about faith and faith alone. Now, what we'll see in chapter 5 is he is declaring the effects, the fruit, as it were, of a life that has been justified 
by God. And I think it's important for us to keep in mind that there is a difference when talking about the gospel. There is a difference between the facts of the gospel and the effects of the gospel. The facts of the gospel are what Jesus Christ did for you, for me, for every single person. When He lived the sinless life, died an atoning death, and rose again. That's the facts of the gospel. But the effects of the gospel, what that does for a person who has believed in Jesus is what we're going to talk about today. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 to 5. Let's read it together. Paul writes, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that our suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. When I was 28, I'm almost 37, uh, and getting grayer. I know some of you can't see it from here, but it's happening, and I see it every day in the mirror. But when I was 28 uh, and a new pastor, I had a conversation with my wife about going back to school and uh, to earn a degree in theology. And naturally, the conversation went, we were newlyweds, and now I've got this great idea. I want to get in, uh, go to school for the next four years and get a degree the conversation directly went to two hurdles, time and money, which were two things we didn't have very much of. And so, but we had a good conversation about it. And the school that I wanted to go to was a really expensive private Christian school. As most of you know, those can be very expensive. But I had this strong sense and drive and desire that I wanted to go. And we trusted God that He would provide to meet those other hurdles, that He would provide the time and that He would provide the resources for me to go. Well, at that same time when we had this conversation, I, uh, we bought a house. We bought our first house of, uh, less than a year after we got married. It was in 2011, and it was at the bottom of the market. And for the next few years, we just watched the value of our house go up and up. And, and by the time I graduated, and by the time I was actually candidating here and getting hired here at Canby Christian, um, we were moving up, and the, the obvious answer was, God, how are you going to provide? I saw Him provide over those four years the time. By God's grace, we were uh, having our children, and we were married, and I was working full-time, and yet I was going to school full-time, and God was graciously providing the ability and the time to be able to do that. Well, now kind of came the end, and I've racked up, as most people have, student loans which is a big burden and debt on most people's shoulders today. And I had it, and I know. But I, I'm getting to the point of this. I had this conversation because we had, through the sale of our house, we were able to pay off all of my student loans. God had provided. But I'll never forget the conversation I had with the person that I called when I wanted to pay off my loan. I called the, the loan person, the government loans or whoever it was, and there was a young girl that answered the phone and she said, hey, how can I help? And I was like, oh, I'd like to make a payment on my student loans. And this is like tens of thousands of dollars in loans, right? And she was like, oh, okay. She looked at my account. She's like, how much would you like to pay? And I'm like, I want to pay it all. And she's like, 
how, what? And I'm like, yeah, I just want to pay it all. And she literally asked me, how are you doing that? And I told her the story of how God had provided and all of these things. It was, a, it was an awesome conversation. And, and this was probably a girl also trying to work off her own student loans and wondering, how did you do this? And I told her the story, and then I said, I want to I pay the whole thing off. And she said, I, I have never had a conversation with someone where they were just willing and able to pay off all of their student loans. And she was just blown away. But I remember that night going to bed. I was literally driving up here. I had that phone call in a hotel room on the way up here when, I, when my family and I were moving here. But I remember going to bed that night with this sense of relief because for four years I was building up this burden going, how is this going to happen, God? How is this going to happen? And, and I had this burden growing over me. And I was thinking, was I making the right decision by going to school? How will this affect my family? And on and on and all the other related questions. And so when this burden was finally lifted, I felt this sense of relief. And some of you know that feeling when uh, a burden has been lifted like that. And yet, even as often or as awesome as that feeling was, it doesn't compare to a feeling, a similar feeling that I had even years before that. But I'm going to save that story to the end. It's a little bit of a punchline. But I bring this up as an illustration of the peace, the effects that comes by being justified by faith in God, which is largely, largely what Paul is talking about in this opening section. Paul opens chapter 5 with that cool little word, therefore, and whenever you see the word therefore, you have to figure out why it's therefore, right? This is a transition word that Paul often uses when shifting a thought. He's connecting two things together. He's saying, listen, in light of what I was just saying, now I'm going to say something else. This is what that means. But I also want you to notice that word, we, right there. I think it's the third word, we. Paul started this letter in Romans by talking about himself. He said, I, the Apostle Paul, I am unashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. And then right after that, after talking about himself, he goes, and those people out there, they've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And now everybody's attention, they're, shift, they're looking at Paul, but now they're looking at everyone else. Yeah, look at all those people. They're all sinful. They're all wretched. They're all depraved. They're all fallen, and they're all being judged. And then Paul goes, but wait, you, you, critical moralizer, you judgmental person, you are also guilty. And so you see he's talking to all of these people. And now he addresses a different group. Now he's saying, but we, but we. He's talking about I, then he's talking about them, and then he's talking about you, and now he's saying, but we. Who are we? We are the redeemed people of God. Those who once participated in all the things that he was talking about, whom God had redeemed but were before that deemed sinful, now they're redeemed, they're justified by faith before God, they're, they're declared righteous, not on the basis of their works, not on their merits, not on their religious activity, but on the person and work of Jesus Christ alone, the one who gave his life on the cross for you and me, was raised from the grave. We who once owed a debt that we could not pay are now liberated from that debt, not because we built up that spiritual equity, and value on our own, but because someone else came in and said, you know what, I'll pay the debt for you. 
I will pay the debt for you. And it is that reality that he points to first. He says, therefore, we, we, those of us who have been justified by faith in Jesus, we're no longer debtors before God because of our sin. We now, because of what God has done for us, we now have this amazing thing. We have peace, peace with God. That word peace is is really a fascinating word. If you're from a former generation before my time, when you think of the word peace, it's usually symbols like this, right? Or the little emblem with the, however you draw it. That word peace for some has, has a different meaning, but peace in the world seems to be the thing that people are chasing, but never really arriving at, right? It's that elusive thing. We can never find it. But the elusiveness of peace and our longing for it is actually evidence. It's evidence of our need for God and our being made in His image, but also the present reality of sin. One of my favorite books that I read when I was in school was by an author named Cornelius Plantinga. What a great name, huh? Cornelius Plantinga. But the book was called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, and it was a a summary of sin. And in the book, he argues that sin, which is what Paul has been talking about up to this point, and our experience of it is really what he calls a vandalism of shalom. Shalom is the Hebrew word for peace. And what he's saying is that when God made the world, when He made Adam and Eve, life was perfect. Life was peace. It was, it was categorically shalom. It was perfect peace. Adam was at peace with himself. When he looked in the mirror, the reflection in the water, I guess he didn't have mirrors, but when he looked at his reflection, Adam didn't suffer from depression or anxiety. When he looked, he didn't see, he didn't have gender dysphoria. He didn't see something else other than what he really was. And you know what? He was totally fine with it. He was at peace with who he was before sin entered into the picture. Adam and Eve, this relationship with each other, They were at perfect peace. As we are told in Genesis 2, this great verse, and Adam and Eve, as a married couple, they were both naked and unashamed, fully known, fully loved. They embraced each other's strengths and weaknesses, and they didn't use either one as a weapon against the other. They were at peace with one another. It was, this was shalom in the marriage relationship, and they were in perfect peace with creation. Adam's care of the animals and the plants and every part of the earth was in perfect shalom, in peace. Everything worked the way it was supposed to be, the way God made it to be. And that's because all of that worked because the most important relationship of all was in shalom, in peace. There was a peace between God and man. As we are told, Adam walked with God in the cool of the day. He knew God intimately. He knew Him personally. But all that changed, right? All that changed when sin entered the picture. Adam and Eve disobeyed, and the moment that they did, shalom was gone. Peace was disrupted with chaos. And they casted themselves as the victims, and yet they were the victimizers, and God was the victim in reality. And the moment that sin, it was like a parasite, like a terrorist, like a novel virus or a disease, it spread and it plagued every square inch of life in this world. When sin entered the picture, it was a vandalism of shalom, the peace that mankind once enjoyed, that our hearts always still constantly long for but never get it on our own, that peace that we enjoyed in and of ourselves 
With others, with creation, with God, it was now riddled with hostility. Today, even if you look at the best marriage, you think, man, their marriage is amazing. Even that marriage is still riddled with chaos. Even you see the best of friends, those friends still experience hostility. And again, all that does is remind us of what was lost, what can never really be found again on our own. But here's the good news that Paul just told us. And he's sharing with the church in Rome, and he's sharing with the church today that peace, that peace that our hearts long for, is possible because God has made it possible through Jesus. But it is only experienced for the believer, only experienced for the believer. What was lost by Adam, listen to this, what was lost by Adam in the Garden of Eden when he sinned was restored through Christ in the gar- starting in the Garden of Gethsemane when he offered up his life in our place. In fact, it is this contrast between Adam and Jesus that Paul's going to get to here later on in chapter 5. But here's the incredible news that Paul is declaring in this opening statement, that because you and me, because we, the redeemed people of God, have been justified by faith in Jesus alone and are now declared forgiven, you're declared righteous, and therefore, because of that, you have peace with God. That's the effect of becoming a Christian, where once hostility and separation lived, peace and reconciliation now reside. Really, that's what salvation is all about. We were once far from God, enemies of God, hostile toward God, but through justification, through the cross, God has made peace where there was once war. And I think that's incredible, but that isn't all that it is about. Because even though sin is a vandalism of shalom, a disruption of these relationships, there's so much more to our relationship with God than simply having peace, though that is essential. And to show that, Paul goes on and he lists more benefits of our justification through faith in Jesus. Look at verse 2. He declares that it is through Jesus we now also, not just do we have peace with God, but we have access, access into the presence of God whereby which we receive grace and in which we stand on this grace. Let me give you an illustration of what he's talking about. This last week, I drove my neighbors to the airport. Six in the morning, they're flying to Hawaii for two weeks. I'm a little jealous. But I'm, I'm driving them there to the airport. They, they asked me to drive. And, and normally, you know, you would offer to drive your own car, right? But they wanted me to drive their car. So I'm driving home with their car, and they give me the garage door opener to their house. And you know, the thought comes in your mind, well, what do they have in the refrigerator, right? <laughs> we're, we're close. Let's go. Let's see if they have like, I don't know, orange juice or something like that. They give me access into their house. Why? Because we have a great relationship. We are neighbors, but we're friends. You don't give access to your home or to your car or to anything like that to somebody that you don't trust. In fact, if you distrust someone, you would never give them access. But now what he is saying is this, because we have peace with God, because we have a restored relationship with Him, we now also at the same time have access, access into the presence of God in order that we might receive grace, more grace, the grace that we need in order to live the Christian life 
in this fallen world. We need this grace because we still live on in the flesh, right? We, God justifies us, but He justifies the unjust. We still sin every single day. We still mess up. And guess what? The same grace that we needed to save us is the same grace that we still need every day to keep us. That grace sanctifies us. We struggle with sin. We struggle with guilt. And so we need God's grace every day. This is our experience. This is our reality. And yet at the same time, it's not our reality, right? That's the way we feel. That's the way that we think. And yet God says, listen, you now have access. Adam and Eve, remember when they sinned, they hid. They ran. They tried to cover themselves from God. And yet now he's saying, listen, I have clothed you. I have covered you in the righteousness of Jesus. Remember in, this, in Genesis when we were covering that, when we got to the story of Jacob and Esau, remember Jacob, he covered himself with animal hair. He disguised himself with animal hair, pretending to be his brother Esau in order that he might receive his father's blessing. Well, in a similar way, as kind of a typology of that, we, we're not just the, we're not the tricksters like J- Jacob, but we're really not the person that we think we are, right? We're children of God now, and we're clothed in the righteousness of Jesus, so that when the Father sees us, He doesn't see us as we are. He sees the perfect righteousness of His Son, Jesus. And because of that, Paul is saying, you've been given access into God's presence, whereby which we can receive all that we need to live a life of godliness, which really boils down to one thing. It's just more grace. We need more grace. The same grace, again, that saved you is the same grace that keeps you, and it is the same grace that allows you, as Paul says, to stand, to stand with confidence. Paul writes there in the middle of verse 2, it is this grace that we now stand. And, and this imagery has several layers in mind. The, the context of the earlier chapters reminds us that people place their trust, they try and stand on a lot of different things. They try and place their trust and their lives in surfaces like works, like religion, like morality, like their achievements or their contributions to uh, anthropic works or whatever it is. They think that on the day of judgment, they will be able to stand, (coughs) excuse me, stand before God on these things but that would be like standing on a paddleboard in a tsunami. You're not going to be able to stand before God on these things. As the hymn says it, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. No other surface can give you the confidence to stand before the presence of God than the righteousness of Jesus. This is part of that imagery. And second, the word stand is in the present active tense. What that means is right now, this is where you stand. Not just in the future, when you stand before the judgment seat of God can you stand, but right now we stand on this grace that he's talking about. And he's saying, if you stand on this grace, you will not fall. You will not falter. Yes, you will struggle. I will struggle. We will all struggle together. You will suffer, and we're going to talk about that in a moment, but the same grace that saved you is the same grace that will keep you if you stand on that grace and that grace alone. So because we are justified by faith in Jesus, we first have peace. Second, because we have peace, we now have access 
into the grace of God. And third, he says this wonderful line, we rejoice. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We rejoice as Christians. Why? Why? We hope because we understand that one day all of this will be over. We hope in God, not in ourselves. We hope because, well, this isn't like I hope I win the lottery, right? We hope because it's a guarantee. God, who always fulfills His promises, guarantees these things for us. But what is it specifically that Paul says our hope is in? Our hope is in the glory of God. And once again, this has layers to it. First, the context informs us that there is a glory that was lost when the fall happened and sin entered the world. When God made Adam and Eve, He made them in His image and likeness. We are His image bearers to reflect His character and to some degree reflect His glory on the earth. But glory, just like the image, was destroyed. You've probably seen car accidents uh, where the cars are just mangled and destroyed. And you look at that and you say, it looks like a heap of metal, but I could tell at one point that was a car. And you feel a little bit devastated by it. But there's a a really gut-wrenching feeling if you've ever seen like a Ferrari or a Lamborghini that's just been totaled and destroyed. You're like, oh, the glory of this car, and now look at it. It's mangled. It's destroyed. There's fragments of the glory there. I don't know, maybe the logo is on the street or something like that, but it's all destroyed. Well, the hope of the gospel is that the glory that was lost in the garden that God shared with us, with mankind, will be restored through His sanctifying grace. For the believer, this gives us hope in knowing that my destiny, your destiny, your life is not like that car hobbling down the road on flat tires. That's not our destiny. Our destiny is the hope of glory. And it is that glory that God, through our sufferings, through our sufferings, is actually increasing glory in us day by day, which will ultimately be fulfilled on the day that we stand before Him. The biblical reality is this. Listen, you cannot live to your full human potential apart from a relationship with God. The best life that you can think of, and we do a good job of comparing our lives to other people We look at the rich, we look at the famous, we look at the popular, or we look at the simple, and we think, man, if only I had what they had, then their life would be amazing. They're living their best life now, is what we think. But if it is done apart from faith in God, they are not living to their fullest potential because they're pursuing the world's glory. But the world's glory will always be less than, not even close to, the glory of God that He is remaking us, transforming us into. That's one layer of this idea, but there's another more obvious layer, which is that we as His redeemed people get to behold what Moses wanted to behold on Mount Sinai but couldn't, which was the glory of God. We as Christians get to experience and see the glory of God through His activity. You know, when a person isn't saved, when they haven't placed their faith in Jesus, Unfortunately, they don't see the way, the world, the way that we see it. I guess in a metaphorical sense, they're colorblind. But we, by faith, 
see the world with color, with beauty, with wonder. We see things through the lens of faith that they cannot see, and that allows us to see the activity of God in the big things and even in the little things. And I'm speaking both metaphorically, but also literally. I mean this in the literal sense because we get to witness God doing glorious things on a regular basis, providing, healing, convicting, transforming. The non-Christian doesn't get to see any of this. They reason it away and say, oh, well, that person, they just changed their life, or, or that just was coincidence, or this or that. That's all they see. But we see the activity of God, the glory of God, His character working in the lives of people. In one sense, our faith has given us the best seat and suite in the house. We get to behold the glory of God. We get to see His character revealed through His Word. The non-Christian, as, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, they read the Bible and it doesn't make sense to them. They don't get it. The spiritual things are not discernible to the carnal mind, Paul says in 1 Corinthians. But we get to see it. We get to see God's character through His Word. We get to perceive His saving ways in, in different people. We get to see answered prayer. We get to see answered prayer. How awesome is that? We get to see people respond to the gospel in simple conversations. This is the believer's hope, the hope of glory. Glory now, glory in the future. But verse 3 is where all of this kind of comes back to earth a little bit. You see, it is true that the believer has all of these things. We have peace with God. We have access into this grace. We have the hope of glory. Isn't that all awesome? I mean, life's kind of in the clouds right now. But that doesn't remove us from life in a fallen world, right? If we just stopped right there, then this would almost seem like Paul is not connected to reality anymore because the reality is we still live in a fallen world. We still live in the sinful flesh. We still live among sinful people. We still live in a fractured world all around us. But the believer now, Paul says, has an edge up even in these things because what he says here is that the things that once crushed us those events, those situations, those struggles that once made us want to numb ourselves with substance abuse or relationship abuse or just ending it all together is now a tool in the Redeemer's hands to grow and mature us. Look at verse 3 and just see how he describes that. We don't like to hear this, but the path to glory isn't glorious. The path to glory isn't glorious. The path to glory is through suffering, and it's always been that way. If that wasn't true, then, then Jesus wouldn't have had to suffer. Before Jesus entered into His glory, He first had to suffer. Therefore, we too, in order to enter into our glory, will also suffer. As creatures, fallen creatures, we idolize and we worship comfort. We worship ease, and we hate the idea of going through hardship and difficulty. But look at what Paul says there in verse 3. In light of all that God has done for us by justifying us through faith in Jesus, we even go so far as to rejoice in our sufferings. Notice he doesn't say in spite of or despite of our sufferings. He also says we don't rejoice on account of our sufferings. He's not saying our sufferings bring us joy in and of themselves. He's saying, but we rejoice in our sufferings because of what it produces. And what is interesting 
is last week, remember, we did a contrast between James and Paul on this topic of justification by faith alone. It seemed like at first there was a disagreement, but in reality, they were looking at the same coin, just different sides of the picture. And it almost seemed as if they disagreed, but we saw that they actually agree with one another. But now we come here, and it's almost like Paul and James are writing the exact same thing because James says, consider it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing what? What it produces. Not because of the trial itself. Life is hard. Don't find joy in that. That's weird. But find joy in what that suffering will produce. And Paul is saying the same thing here. Most Christians tend to see suffering as an obstacle to life, as a setback to where God really wants you to be, which is living your best life now, right? But what if God, think about this, what if God and His will for you right now or in the future or in the past is to go through that season of fire. What if it was God's will for you to go through that season of fire? Would you be okay with that? Better question, would you rejoice in that? Would you rejoice in that? And I'm going to be honest with you, you know, it's difficult. (laughs) It's difficult to find joy in that time. However, I, I read what Paul is saying here and I get it. I understand. I've experienced enough in my walk with Christ to know what Paul is talking about here. I have seen how suffering can produce, can be spiritually productive. It may not be productive in the utilitarian sense, right? And that's how we often think. If I'm not getting something done tangibly, then it must not be productive. But he's not talking about that. He's talking about spiritually productive. It does something in us. Ask yourself this question. What is it that you would want more than anything else in this life? I'm serious. What is the one thing that you want more than anything? What is the one thing you desire? What is the one thing you think, if I got this one thing, everything else would take care of itself? What is that one thing? If you're a Christian, I hope that your answer is that the thing that you want more than anything else The thing that you know, if I had this, everything else would take care of itself, is that you would want to be like Jesus. That you would want to be like Jesus. I don't mean that you desire to be a first century Jewish rabbi. (laughs) What I mean is that you desire to be like him in his character. And that's what Paul is getting at here. That as you suffer in faith, You can rejoice because you know that God is producing in you the character of Jesus, which hopefully is what you really, really want. This is what you should desire because you know, man, if I had that, everything else would work itself out. What does it matter if you lose time or money or a job or even a reputation if you're becoming more and more like Jesus? The cost to gain ratio doesn't even come into equation. What does it matter if you lost a year of your life because of government lockdowns if it means that throughout that year God used the sufferings you experienced to in the end produce in you a character that looked more like Jesus? Would you do it again? If it produced in you what you really want, which is the character of Jesus, I would hope you would. But there's one final benefit of justification by faith alone that Paul lists here in these opening verses, which is not only the glory of God, but he says the love of God 
which is there at the end in verse 5. Peace and love, right? Now we're really getting hippie in here. Peace and love. It's what every human being on the planet wants but can never truly and fully find outside of a relationship with God because peace and love are nothing outside of the peace of God and the love of God. But here's the good news. Because God has justified us, because He has granted us access into His presence, because we now have hope of glory, He has also given us love. And this love, He says, is constantly, continually, being poured out in an overflowing way into your hearts through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, which, interesting note, this is the first time the Holy Spirit is mentioned in the letter of Romans, but it's not the last. But just like peace and love, neither are given apart from a relationship with God. God doesn't just give you love. What God does is He gives you Himself. He gives you the Holy Spirit who then gives you love, overflowing, pouring out into your hearts. Isn't that amazing? The presence of God's Spirit living inside your heart, constantly pouring out love to you. This is what God has done for us through faith. I said that I would end by telling you about an even better moment and feeling I had than when I was able to pay off my student loan debt, and it was a a situation that actually happened years before that. And it was the night that I gave my life to Jesus. When I heard the message of the gospel that God loved me, that He proved that love by sending His Son into this world to die in my place, and that He paid for my sin and was willing to forgive me of all of my sin, and that He wanted a relationship with me, messed up me, man, that was incredible news. And I committed my life to Jesus that night. And hours later, I remember I remember going to bed that night, and I laid my head on my pillow, and I'm not lying to you when I say this. This is kind of an expression. There is no softer pillow in the world than a clear conscience before God. There isn't. If you feel that guilt and that shame, then then you will always sleep uncomfortably. (laughs) But when you know your sin is forgiven, when you know you have peace with God, and that you have access into a relationship with Him, and it's not by anything that you did, but by everything He did for you, friends, there is no softer pillow in the world. There is no heart that can be at rest than the heart that is at peace with God. Have you placed your faith in Christ alone for your salvation? Do you want that peace? Do you want that love? Do you even want the glory You're not going to find it out there. You'll only find it in a relationship with Jesus. If you seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, all the other things will be added to you. Why don't we pray and then we'll have a time of communion. Father, we're thankful for the cross. We're thankful for Your grace. We're thankful for this access. We're thankful for the peace that You have made right what we, Your people, have made so wrong so often. You made it right. You fixed what we could not fix. You restored a relationship that we could not restore. And now, because of that, we can love you rightly. We can see ourselves correctly. We can love other people truly and humbly. And we can serve 
without any desire for our own glory, but for your glory alone. And we thank you for the work that you have done and are doing in us. But we pray for, that, for more of that grace. That God, even as we come and gather as your people today and in some sense enter into your presence, I pray that, that God, your grace would be poured out to us today so that we can live the life that you have called us to live. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.